Hey everyone, welcome to the I Dare You podcast. This podcast, you know this, it's all about you and helping you reach the big goals that you have for your life. And what next steps do you want to take to get there? And I'm your host, Darren Johnson. Welcome to the show. Now, if you're new to the show, a special welcome to you. If you like what you hear, make sure you're subscribing and following so you do not miss an episode. Also, everyone, go straight away at I Dare You Pod on Instagram. That's where all the action is happening. Great community, exclusive content. The best way to communicate with me at I Dare You Pod. I'll see you there. Now, this episode, I can't wait to get into this because. Our guest, just a rare combination. He is Dr. Bapu Jenna. He is an economist, a physician, a podcaster, a best-selling author. He's also a professor of healthcare policy at the Harvard Medical School. And his brand new book, best-selling book, Random Acts of Medicine, The Hidden Forces That Sway Doctors, Impact Patients, and Shape Our Health. Now, as you'll hear in the interview with Dr. Jenna, he is passionate about helping people think differently about medicine and health and their own lives. So what can you expect to learn in this episode? Well, I think your eyes are going to be opened into these hidden forces that influence doctors and us, and it shapes our own health. Things like timing and circumstance or luck, how does it impact healthcare? So this episode is a mind bender because it's going to force you to look at how random occurrences and big natural experiments happening all around us influences our lives. So I say, let's get it going. This interview is going to hang with you for some time. Here he is, everyone, Dr. Bapu Jenna. Bapu, welcome to the podcast. It is really good to have you here. Thank you for having me. Okay. I cannot wait for this discussion. I've been doing a lot of research leading up to this interview, and your new book, Random Acts of Medicine, blew my mind. I've got so many questions about this. Entertaining, thought-provoking. Before we get there, though, Talk about your background. I mean, you heard my introduction of you. Tell us about your background. How did you land in your current role right now? You know, I, I always was interested in medicine because my mom was uh, a medical doctor. She retired a few years ago. And so I knew I wanted to, to be a doctor, probably, you know, starting in high school or so. And uh, I was also interested in research because my, my father was a, a university professor and he still does research and he loves it. And so I had this sort of interest in, in being a doctor, but also doing research. And um, in college, I worked in a, a basic science laboratory with pipettes and things like that, <clears throat> thinking that I would do an MD and then a PhD in some basic science discipline like biology or cancer biology, something like that. And I was interviewing for programs around the country in my senior year to do such a thing. And when I visited the University of Chicago, which is where I ended up for, you know, about eight, nine years, the director of that uh, MD, PhD program noticed that I'd also studied economics in college, like you, like you alluded to, and said to me, do you want to do your PhD in economics instead? And, wow. you know, I didn't, I didn't walk into that meeting at the University of Chicago thinking I'm going to do a PhD in economics. It never even occurred to me. And when he offered that as an as an option, I said, well, you know, I never thought about it. Let me think about it a little bit. And I ended up going ahead and doing it, recognizing that if I didn't enjoy economics at the at the graduate level and um, if I or or if I wasn't able to do it, which is a very real possibility, then I would have fallen back to my original plan. Uh, But, you know, as it turned out, um, I, I enjoyed it. I had an aptitude for it. And uh, I did it. And, you know, fast forward many years later, that, that was 1999. That was the original visit. 
and uh, started yeah. in the summer of 2000. Well, that is that's a cool story, you know, with that combination though of being a, a doctor and an economist, PhD in economics. That's a very small group. I mean, have you quantified that? That's a really unique combination. Yeah, it's it's quite small, and it depends on how you define um, uh, economics. If you define economics as a PhD in informal economics, it's not many people. Maybe you know, ten to twenty people, something like that. If you expand it further to say people who have done PhDs in very closely related disciplines like healthcare policy or uh, health services research, even epidemiology, then you know we're talking about quite a bit more. But still, you know, I'm I'm just estimating we're talking about in the hundreds, um, <laughs> you know, in this country for so, sure. Uh, so yeah. it's not very common. Well, you're doing a lot with your time and talents. I know your uh, podcast on Freakonomics MD, which I just listened to an episode, and I know you have an announcement on that, but uh, Freakonomics MD, you know, I'm looking at the description of it, and you dig into fascinating study at the intersection of economics and healthcare, this hidden side of, of medicine. Where does economics fit into all of this? Yeah, I think economics fits into almost every part of healthcare and and I'm I'm interested in, in questions that are you know I think very particular in their in their nature they're sort of questions that aren't in the weeds of healthcare financing or insurance design um, but they're really general questions that anybody might be interested in who doesn't have a background in in economics you, you talk to people about economics I think they think about things like interest rates and employment um, and inflation. Those are things you hear about a lot. Yeah. Uh, and even if you talk to uh, physicians about economics, they're going to be thinking about questions like, how do physicians and hospitals get paid? What are the prices of drugs? How are those determined? What impact do those prices have on use of medications? Um, insurance, you know, why does insurance cost what it does? What is the economic purpose of insurance? Like these are more, these are sort of fundamental economic questions that I think people would gravitate towards when they think of, all right, what are the economic issues in medicine? Uh, but I would argue that the, the, the issues in medicine are much, much broader than, than that. I mean, um, you know, there's economic questions about how doctors and patients behave, how it is that they make decisions, what is it that affects a doctor's diagnosis of a medical condition? What is it that affects how a doctor decides to treat you? How do their experiences matter? How does their training matter? These are all sort of questions that dovetail nicely with economics, but also some of the, the empirical tools economists have really helped develop to study questions around cause and effect. You know, what is the effect of some intervention on some outcome? Okay, so that, let's... Let's transition then into Freakonomics, which is uh, Freakonomics MD, which, I mean, just a fantastic podcast. And wh what have you enjoyed most about doing that, that, that podcast? And how did it influence now your new book, Random Acts of Medicine? Uh, so I'll tell you what I enjoyed uh, most about it. First of all, the, the Freakonomics folks were very gracious years ago to, to let me do this show. Uh, and I've had a, a, a lot of fun um, doing it. Um, I spend most of my time thinking about ideas and doing research and teaching. That's like the bread and butter of what I do and people like me do. And what I enjoyed about both the Freakonomics MD podcast, but also writing this book, was it allowed me to enter a sort of a different world that people like me don't spend a lot of time in, which is 
all right, how do you tell stories uh, about ideas? How do you write or communicate ideas in a way that people who are not specialists in your field, uh, who have a lot of training, might A, understand, B, see the importance of, and C, say, oh, wow, I wish I had done that or, you know, get excited about it. And so that was a, a part of both the podcast and, and the book that I thought was really interesting. It's, uh, you know, in, in our line of work, in my line of work, it is important to be creative, to, to be creative in coming up with interesting questions. But, you know, when you write a book, when you write a podcast, there's a different type of creativity. You've got to come up with a question that people want to know the answer to, they're interested in. You've also got to figure out a creative way to, um, you know, to provide that information. And that could be something like what music you select, right. what pieces of interviews you select to include, how the story, how the information gets weaved together. That's true in a podcast. That's true in a book. That's something that people who are, you know, in media and writing, they think about a lot. It's not something that academics think about a lot. So that was sort of an interesting um, learning experience for me. All right. Random acts of medicine, the hidden forces that sway doctors, impact patients, and shape our health. Uh, as I mentioned to you, um, by the way, I'm three quarters of the way through your book. Every page is just, it's entertaining. It's thought provoking. What was there about this book? Why this book? Why now? What was the driver for you? Uh, a couple of things. So one is, um, as you can tell from the book, that the types of questions that I'm asking, well, first of all, most of the book is based on work that I've done over the last so 10 or so years. And each chapter is about an idea from a study um, that I did with, with others. And then we use that as a branch point to talk about lots of different uh, issues. And so in that respect, it, it was very much like Freakonomics, the, the book by Steve Levitt and Steve Dubner, because it was a, lot, a lot of it was based on Steve Levitt's um, research at, at the University of Chicago. And so in, in a lot of respects, my book is like that. It's about sort of Freakonomics meets medicine type questions that I've been spending time on over the last uh, 10 or so years. And, you know, I, I recognize that there could be a, a popular interest in these types of questions. And so I always wanted to write something down, right? You know, write a book. Um, but you know, as you can imagine, books take time, they take energy, they take creativity. And I had a lot of other things on my plate. Um, and a few years ago, I was lucky to meet someone named Chris Worsham. Chris is a doctor at Mass General Hospital at Harvard. He's a pulmonary or lung doctor, critical care doctor. So he, he specializes in caring for patients in the ICU. Um, he's a health services or health policy researcher, and he's, a, and he's just a great thinker and great writer. And about five or six years ago, um, I met Chris. And Chris and I started working on research papers uh, together. And then... Um, you know, around the start of the pandemic, I was thinking, well, might it be interesting to write a book? And so I said to Chris, do you want to write one together? Because I know I can't do it on my own. And he just has, a, you know, a real clarity of thinking about topics. He, he understood the methods, the research. He had that critical care perspective, which was uh, unique and different from my own. And so it was sort of a confluence of factors, but an important one was meeting him and and having this mutual interest in talking about this research and communicating it to the public. It's good. Nice collaboration, for sure. It has been, yeah. You know, part of my background, I mentioned to you before we started recording, um, I was with Bristol-Myers Squibb, a division of Bristol-Myers Squibb for a number of years, and uh, I was the VP of medical sales, and our, our pharmaceutical sales force 
we would train them on evidence-based selling to be able to go in and talk to residents and physicians about, you know, antibiotics and other prescription products. Loved it. And we were really very good, uh, Bapu, at talking about randomized controlled trials. And they're just, you know, the gold standard. Uh, the treatments, the treatment group, control group. In your book, there's a huge emphasis on natural experiments. And how does how does that that randomized trial, controlled trial, compare and difference from is different from a natural experiment? Because that's a foundation of what you're talking about. That's right. So the 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 foundation of the randomized trial is randomization. That because you randomize a group of people to two different treatments, you essentially are able to hold all the factors that might differ between those two groups, hold those factors constant. And so any differences in outcomes that you see can be attributed to the receipt of the, the treatment that you're interested in studying the effect of. Um, now in the real world, it's hard to do randomized trials. They're expensive, you know, they're really costly. They take time to do. Sometimes it's difficult to recruit patients to participate in trials. And oftentimes what people are left with is looking at real world data, observations of what happened to people, what happens to people who take a treatment or take a different treatment. And researchers will sometimes just compare those two groups and try to say something about what treatments work better than others. The problem with that observational analysis is that in the real world, people aren't randomized to treatments, they select them. So it's a choice that they make. And as a result, there may be other differences between those groups that are what leads to the outcome differences that we might measure. And so you can't say that a treatment causes a, an outcome because the people haven't been randomized. There's a, there's a common phrase, correlation isn't causation. It's, it's the same idea. So what do natural experiments do? Well, basically what they do is they say, can we find a situation in the real world where nature has essentially randomized people to one treatment or one intervention versus uh, another? So in the case of drugs, if you wanted to figure out what is the causal effect of a drug on an outcome, you could do a randomized trial. A way a natural experiment might look, though, is you could say, well, what happens when the particular drug that we want to study has a shortage? So there's a period of time in a country or in an area of a country where that drug goes on shortage. And it's totally random because people don't develop diseases at specific times thinking, all right, I'm going to develop this medical condition because there's a drug available and I'm not going to develop this medical condition because there's a short shortage. It's just totally random when those shortages happen. And during the periods of shortages, you can see what happens when people are by chance no longer exposed to the opportunity for treatment that they otherwise would have had access to weeks earlier or potentially weeks or months later. And so that's an example how a natural experiment could tell you something about the real world effectiveness of a drug leveraging uh, a supply shock, uh, an inability for some short period of time to get access to a medication. What is your process for identifying natural experiments? And, and before I let you answer, I was thinking about you and also a previous podcast guest. His name is Jeremy Utley. He's a professor at the Stanford Design School. And he talked about creativity or ideas, not just as something random, but something that's a discipline, it's a process. Mm -hmm. It's something that really has a has something you can um, practice. 
So give me your take on that. And do you agree with that? And what is your process for, for identifying and coming up with these natural experiments? Great question. So I, A, I would agree. B, I would say, I don't know if there's good evidence, at least that I'm aware, but there might be in other fields about, uh, about what I'm, I'm going to say, but I'll, I'll say it anyway, because it uh, seems to have worked for me. But, you know, in medicine, in business, in engineering, in design school, in um, the culinary arts, we teach people how to solve a problem. Okay, so if you are given a chicken and you need to cook it in a certain way, that's a problem you need to solve. And uh, a chef would be taught the methods to solve that problem. In other words, how to prepare the chicken in a certain way. In the same way that an engineer faced with a, a design question about a building or a dam would be taught the tools to be able to solve that problem. That is a very different set of skills, potentially, than the skills required to conceive to create the most interesting of problems. And we don't spend a lot of time at any level of education, whether it's elementary, middle school, high school, uh, college, graduate school, of saying to people, okay, here's how you come up with good ideas. Here's how you create new ideas. And it's interesting because I think that if we can teach human beings how to transplant organs from one human being to another, or you know, as recently has been done to transplant organs from a pig to a human being, I'm sure we can, that. yeah, I'm sure we can teach people how to come up with good ideas. What that process would look like, I, I couldn't tell you, but I'll tell you what we do. So we spend probably, I'd say two to three hours per week, um, several times a week where we just sit down and we talk about new ideas. We, lit we literally just brainstorm and I'll really? open up the discussion with, all right, who's got an idea? And someone will say something or I will say something and we just, you know, come up with ideas on the fly. And it, it's a process. It's a process of creativity. Um, I think people would push back and say, well, that's ineffective. And I would say, yeah, it, it's probably not an effective way to come up with ideas in the moment, though, to be honest, many of our ideas we come up with in those actual meetings. But mm. I think it also just trains you to be on the prowl, to be looking at patterns around you and thinking to yourself, all right, what ideas come to mind? And to always be inquisitive and to always be thinking as creative a way as you can, I've got to imagine that that can lead to more creative insights, more creative people. Give me an example of one or two ideas that you guys observed and you brought forward that really developed into a, you know, your, a research, a, a hypothesis. Can you give me one? Yeah, well, I, I'll I'll, leave, I'll do even one better. Well, I'll do something on the spot. So I'm I'm literally looking at you right now. Uh, you're very handsome, and you you got it looks like a white shirt, and you got a blue tie. And yes. so if you said to me, Bapu, all right, what ideas come to mind? The first thing that would come to my mind right now is I think, all right, well, in the hospital, uh, people used to wear ties quite a bit. Doctors used to wear ties quite often, and we've seen a move away from that in recent years. And one thing that people will say is whether or not ties are sort of a, a place where, you know, you're examining a patient, the tie touches them, bacteria moves from the patient to the tie. Uh, is it sort of bad hygiene, infection control? And, you know, makes sense. It could be true. And so I would think to myself, okay, well, could we look at whether, first of all, could we just measure, um, you know, the presence of bacteria on ties? People have done things like that. 
could we look at whether or not doctors who wear ties, whether or not the patients that they see are more likely to develop hospital-acquired infections compared to doctors who do not wear ties? That's another question that might come to mind. Maybe you distinguish between doctors who wear ties and bow ties. Maybe you think, all right, doctors who wear ties might be different. Maybe they're more conscientious. They, hand, they wash their hands more often. So that might sort of lead us to not find something. Well, then I say, all right, well, let's get a you know a control group of people who might be equally conscious about their appearance and focus on people who wear bow ties as opposed to ties. So there's lots of different questions that you could think about. I just watched this GOP Republican debate uh, a few days ago. Quite interesting. Ooh, so did I. So did yeah, I. Yeah, you know, and of course, everybody up there, most people up there are wearing red um, because they're Republicans as opposed to blue. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, all right, what's what's the evidence that that actually matters? What's the causal effect of wearing red versus blue? Like everybody does it because they think that they need to do it. But does it actually have an impact? If you were to look at uh, politicians and and have them record videos same video with a red tie versus a blue tie and show those videos those vignettes to a bunch of potential voters and ask them about their impressions of the candidate would they be any different if the person was wearing a red tie versus a blue tie i i suspect not but wouldn't it be interesting if you saw that were true so darren that's exactly what we do is something like that which is we do it for half an hour to an hour where someone will say an idea and we're just thinking out loud, okay, what comes to mind? And these are mostly like train of thought ideas, but everybody sort of piggybacks uh, off of the person before. So that's a great example how it is. You've, you've trained your brain. You've practiced enough to just on the spot. You're always looking for these experiments, GOP debate, you and I sitting here talking. And by that, looking at my tie, you know, you know, I'm not a doctor, maybe. You're assuming. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so how, then how do you narrow it down, Bapu? So you have all these ideas. What, where does it pass the test for you to say, that's it? That's the one we're going to pursue and, and, and to check out. That's a great. And so that, the answer to that is, I think, what anybody who's making what I would call an investment decision um, thinks about. I think about what the cost of the investment is and what the benefit is. Um, so if, if the answer to that question, uh, whatever it might be, would be, I think, impactful, either because it would have an impact on how we think about the world, or because the question is just so interesting that people will be like, oh, that is a really interesting question. It may not change my life or impact my life, but I yeah. sure thought that was an interesting question. Like, you know, in the book, for example, we talk about some funny study, funnier studies that we've done, um, like look at what, which physicians tend to spend more time on the golf course. And we did that because we were talking one day about this golf database that's, I think, I don't know if the PGA maintains it, but it's a, a golf database of amateur golfers, people who like to golf. You know when what their handicaps are, where they golf, when they tend to golf, some of that information is recorded, and you have the name. And we linked that to information about physicians to figure out which physicians tend to spend the most time on the golf course. So that's an example of a question where I said, all right, what's the cost of getting an answer here? The cost yeah. was pretty low because we actually had the data already. And so we just needed to analyze it. What's the benefit? Well, no matter what we find, it's going to be interesting. It's not going to change the world, but people would be interested to know the answer to that question. So I'm always mm -hmm. thinking about the cost and the benefit of any idea before I start doing it. When you talk about these life-changing type studies and results, is there one in the book that you would just say, man, that one really, really jumps out at me. I've got one 
that I'm going to ask you about, but is there one that you would say, yeah, of all the things, this one really jumps out at me in the book? Oh man, Darren, they're all my babies. I I I like them all. I was like, I'll ask you. I'll ask you one one of my favorites. Okay, tell me your favorite because I, I'll be uh, honest. I, I like all of them, and and anytime I'm working on something, I feel like oh, that's the most interesting thing <laughs> that I've done. And then we oh, talk yeah. about new ideas. I say let, let's shift gears. Let's do this. You know, I, that's the way. That's the that 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 excitement about the idea is what helps me do what I do and keeps me going. Okay, well, but tell okay. me your your go. favorite, Tom Brady. Tom Brady, of course, the greatest of all time, in my opinion, mm -hmm. uh, quarterback in the NFL. This is now from your book. Uh, started at University of Michigan, um, was a seventh-string quarterback there. He was um, drafted 199th pick in the draft. He was a fourth-string quarterback, and then but had a, a year where he just you know developed himself uh, at Michigan, and and also didn't obviously didn't play right away in in New England. And so the premise was, wait a minute, what, what kind of a difference can a year make to practice and develop and to get better? And okay, ADHD in kindergarten, especially in young boys, 12.9%, I believe is the number or diagnosed. There's a, what is the relative age effect of a younger kindergartner, um, someone who was born in August versus a kindergartner born in, born in September, they're here on this earth for 20% longer. And as, as a kindergartner then is diagnosed with ADHD, is there any correlation between the relative age effect? Now, I'm going to stop there. That's, that's one of my favorite stories because I think it is life-changing. It has prolonged effect for the child, but also for the parents. So floor is yours, sir. <laughs> Take it. Yeah. So first of all, I don't I don't think you butchered it. You you made like a nice little beef carpaccio out of it. So I'll, I'll take it. I'll eat it. Um that's exactly right. And the intuition is that in 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 every state, and this is actually not just true in the US, but it's true across the world, that there is a a date for entry into public school and and the age cutoff. So if you're, for example, in Massachusetts, if you turn age five by September one, you can enter kindergarten. If you turn age five on September 5th, then you have to wait a year to enter kindergarten. And what that means is that in states like this, August born children are the youngest kids in their class in any grade, first grade, second grade, third grade, kindergarten, whatever. And September born children tend to be the oldest kids in their class. And what we find is that the August born children are more likely to be diagnosed with ADHD. And the reason why is because their behavior is understandably, predictably, um, less mature than their September born peers. And the reason why is because they've just had less time on earth. Their relative age is younger. And the implication of that is that if those children had been allowed to develop naturally for some period of time, they would ultimately not have been, some of them would not have been diagnosed with ADHD. Um, but because of an artifact of how school educational systems work, these cutoffs for school school entry based on your age, it generates this, this phenomenon, which is that dog, the kids who are young for their class are more likely to be diagnosed with ADHD. But it also speaks to how ADHD is diagnosed in general. It's, it, you don't see the same finding, by the way, for diabetes, because diabetes is based mm -hmm. on a lab test. ADHD is based on a clinical, a subjective clinical diagnosis. And so it's not a surprise that you would see um, additional diagnoses in those August-born kids. And you're right, the implications for the child and the family are, are very large because something as arbitrary as your birth month could impact the likelihood that you're diagnosed with ADHD,
but also treated with a medication, set of medications that have benefits if appropriately used, but also have side effects for all kids or potential side effects uh, for all people who, who use them. And where I'm left with is, all right, what does this mean ultimately for kids and their families? Well, it does suggest that there might be overdiagnosis that's happening. The kids who are born in August might be getting overdiagnosed relative to the kids who were born in September because the August born kids would have matured out of whatever behavior was identified as being problematic or troublesome for the child. Um, but there is also a, an element of underdiagnosis that we don't want to shy away from as well. There's plenty of kids who are probably, um, who have ADHD, who would benefit from a diagnosis and a care plan, maybe even medical treatment, medication treatment, but are not diagnosed. So there's an underdiagnosis issue uh, as well. But I think what our study highlights, though, is that there's probably some overdiagnosis. It leads to medications uh, being prescribed that are lifelong, perhaps, for some of these kids. Yeah, it's just fascinating. And that's the book is just filled with those types of stories and yet yeah, examples, but also, again, stories that I think make this such an entertaining and thought-provoking read. It's Random Acts of Medicine, The Hidden Forces That Sway Doctors, Impact Patients, and Shape Our Health. Bapu, what would you hope that someone would think or do differently as a result of, of reading this book? It depends on who's reading it. So if you're a medical person uh, and you're engaged in doing research or thinking about how medical decisions should be made, I think what I'd hope people take from it is, all right, let me think about how to be more creative in answering questions uh, that I have. Because a lot of medical research is pretty low quality, I think, in the sense that it describes associations between things like, let's say, olive oil and cancer, or, you know, I'm just picking on nutritional behaviors or yeah. certain exercise habits and some health outcome. They may be true causal effects, but you can't establish that from the studies that are done because they're all just associational. They just look at people who do certain behaviors versus not, and then try to argue that the reason the outcomes are different, different are because of those behaviors. Could be all sorts of different things that make the outcomes different. So for those types of people who read the book, natural experiments, this way of thinking about causality, it requires some creativity, um, but it, it you know, is a powerful tool to get at better answers. For the vast majority of people who don't fall in that domain, who are reading it, I think the take-home points are a few. One is to think about the process of creativity more generally. We talked about it. Like, you know, the book is about natural experiments in medicine, that's for sure. But we also try to walk readers through that creative process and that process of understanding how to conceive of and answer a question. And I hope people will take that and say, all right, I could see that applying to anything that I do, whether it's preparing a new meal at a restaurant, creating a new business product, um, whatever it, it, it may be. And then the last thing is, I think, you know, we hope that people learn something about medicine and how it works, sort of the underbelly of it that they may not see and may not think about because there's lots of things that, that people do think about but there's other elements of chance that affect our lives and in, in ways that we don't normally think about but which in hindsight are, are kind of predictable and we can learn something from it that's another key takeaway from the book so those are the things i hope people take away that's good i mean there's a lot there and one thing that i, I just tuned in on is that that creative process uh, whether you're whether you're in medicine or you're a teacher or you're in business to practice that art of creativity, that would be one of the things that, I, that I'm taking away from this interview because we all are just looking around, going through life on, well, 
with our own biases, <laughs> with our own uh, the way we look at our look at the world. And if we can just have some kind of a process to pull up and just to think differently about some of these things happening and not take everything for granted. That's one of the things that I'm taking away from this from this discussion. It's a really, really good, good reminder. Uh, Bapu, what is the best way to stay in touch with you and for all the cool things that you are working on? And and at this, while, I, while I ask you that question, what's coming up for you that you're particularly excited about? Oh, okay. So the keeping in touch part is the easy part. Um, there are a few different ways. So one is I have this podcast, Free Economics MD, which has a bunch. There's probably like 100 episodes that are up there now. So those are those are, are are always available. So if you're interested in this type of stuff, listen to those uh, episodes. Uh, Chris and I, Chris Worship and I, also have a Substack, a newsletter that we're now doing called Random Acts of Medicine, where we talk a lot about these kinds of ideas and really are trying to get people engaged in the creative process. Because you know, every other week or every few weeks, we will describe something that we looked at where we didn't find anything. And the purpose of that is hmm. to say here's all these interesting questions. We're not tethered to the finding. We're just tethered to the idea, the process of coming up with things. So people will see things like whether or not um, uh, cicadas, which are very loud when they have these broods every you know, 10 to 15 years, <laughs> whether that leads to noise pollution and health outcomes, bad health outcomes. We looked at that. We don't find things. Um, so random acts of medicine Substack is great. Uh, of course, reading the book, um, is a great way to get engaged with these topics in terms of what I'm doing now, now, you know, the book is written. So now I'm kind of doing much more going back to writing research studies, papers, um, um, talking to people about the book, which has been really fun. Like, like, like our discussion today. And at some point we'll think about maybe another book, uh, maybe related or maybe unrelated, maybe a little bit random. I don't know, but something, something in the future. Bapu, you've done a lot of podcasts and you're a podcast host as well. Brand new book, Random Acts of Medicine. Is there a question that just hasn't been asked of you related to the Random Acts of Medicine that you just wish people would have caught up to and would have asked? Good question. You know, people have asked all sorts of different questions. Everybody has a different idea in the book that they latch on to. Um, hmm. The people who are interested in sports ask me about the relationship between marathons and mortality. Um, the relationship between birth month and ADHD is a common one, the one that you asked about, Darren. Some people are particularly interested in um, uh, the role of politics in medicine, and we have a chapter on that. So It's a great one. It's a great, yeah. great chapter. Hey, Bapu, at the end of every episode, I ask my guests, what is your I Dare You challenge for all of us? Maybe one thing we could try or do in order to help us get closer to the life we want to live. What, what do you think? What's your I Dare You challenge for us? Oh. I would say, well, okay, I, I would say something not related to research then. Um, I would say, you know, I dare people to make time to help someone else that doesn't benefit them. Um, it's hard to do. People live very busy lives. Um, this does actually relate to the book, you know, um, um, in the process of trying to promote the book, I spent a lot of time emailing lots of different people and saying, you know, we've never met, but I wanted you to, you know, know about this book. And some people who I have uh, never met once before in my life, uh, who had nothing really to gain from me, some people really influential, spent a lot of time trying to help. And hmm. that sort of thing, I think I try to do. Uh, it makes me feel more fulfilled. It makes me feel like I've done something um, 
fun for others and nice for others. And so that, that would be my dare, my challenge is to do something for somebody else where you don't actually stand to benefit anything except that glow of having helped somebody else. It's a great challenge and one that we can all step into. So thank you for that. And Bapu, thanks for being on an I Dare You podcast to have someone with your background uh, and with this type of a book, it's an incredible read with us and just sharing some insights into it. it really means a lot to me and to our audience. So thank you for being here, sir. Thank you. Okay, that was Dr. Bapu Jenna. What an unbelievable conversation. What did you take away from it? For me, I'm still walking away from the ADHD example, and it really is forcing me to think differently about a lot of things. And I think that's the whole point. That's what he wants us to do is to confront our biases and our assumptions and how these random acts can influence our lives, our family's lives. And so let's have more awareness with that. If you liked what you heard, make sure you follow Dr. Jenna. He's got a brand new podcast coming up, Random Acts of Medicine. The fact that he was on Freakonomics Radio with his podcast, Freakonomics MD. Also some great episodes there where he dives more into this. All right, now that you listen to the episode, who will you share it with? Take that one extra step. If you wait until tomorrow, you're probably going to forget. And just know that I appreciate it when you do so. These types of conversations, boy, it's a noisy world out there. And there's a lot of garbage everywhere. And so to sift through and to find the quality and to share that, it's really challenging. But I think you just found it. And remember, follow us on Instagram, at IDareYouPod. A lot of cool things are happening there and a really great community and exclusive content, including video snippets of this interview with Bapu. Thanks for listening and get ready for next week where we're going to do it again on the I Dare You podcast. Another great episode, another killer guest, and more stories to share. And I hope to see you right back here next week. I'll see you then.